Well, I suspect that many of you would agree that the last thing we need today is another Christian taking pot shots at Muslims, stirring up tensions, casting Islam in a bad light. As a kind of um, aversion therapy in preparation for today, I read the recent Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal ruling in the dispute of the Islamic Council of Victoria versus a Christian group in Victoria known as Catch the Fire Ministries. Uh, The claim of the Islamic Council of Victoria was that this Christian group had vilified Islam and had left Muslims open to severe ridicule and contempt. And it hit the media spotlight uh, numerous times and I finally got round to reading Judge Higgins' final judgment. And the complaint that Islam had been ridiculed by this Christian group in a seminar and a newsletter they produced was upheld by the judge and penalties were applied. And regardless of your view of the extent of free speech, and I must say my own view is about as liberal as you can get, and the ruling makes very interesting reading. And I would urge every Christian to read the ruling, to read what was said by Christians about Islam. And I personally believe that every Christian should be ashamed of what was said by Christians about Islam. It seems to me that the ignorance was vast and indeed that Islam was ridiculed. I want to take a very different approach today, an approach that may sound a bit weird, especially to Christians. Um, I want to firstly outline Islam, as I understand it, in a way that I believe Muslims will agree with. And then... I want to explain what is wrong, not with Islam or Muhammad, but with Christianity and the Christian Jesus from the Islamic perspective. So I'm not trying to be cute here, but I am trying to turn it around and explain from the Islamic perspective what is wrong with the Christian version of Jesus. I think what this will do will helpfully, and hopefully in a way that is not at all offensive to Christians or Muslims, explain the points of agreement and tension in a clear way. Uh, Before that, let me explain, though, why devotion to one particular religion, in my case to Christianity, can and should provide the motivation for being fair in the description of someone else's faith. Now, you may think that... Um, confidence in one particular religious perspective will inspire a kind of mean spirit toward others, a kind of bias in the explanation of other points of view. And I actually believe firmly that the opposite is true. Bias in the explanation of someone else's point of view is a sure sign of insecurity about your own point of view. If you have to diminish another perspective in order to make yours look good, you don't believe yours looks good on its own. I often describe uh, this point by way of an analogy. Imagine yourself as an art curator 
in possession of a number of um, beautiful works of art, but one piece of which you believe to have a unique quality. What are you going to do as an art curator? Are you going to dim the lights on the competitors and shine the spotlight on your favoured piece? Well, if you did, that would be a sure sign you were not a truly assured curator. If you've got to dim the lights on others to make yours look good, you obviously don't think yours looks good on its own. But a truly assured art curator is going to turn all the gallery lights on full and allow interested observers to come in to the gallery and inspect the collection for themselves and the confident art curator is going to be confident that his one favoured piece will stand out on its own without the need to dim the lights. This is a little how I feel about the world religions. I am, to be upfront with you, more than ever convinced about the unique beauty and truthfulness and verifiability of Christianity. But that confidence actually inspires me to be fair in the presentation of other beliefs. At least that's my intention, that's my hope today. Well, let me uh, move into point A, a spectator's guide to Islam. Those who know Islam better than I do may be disappointed that I don't go far enough, but I hope at least you'll see I'm trying to be fair about the core of Islamic belief. The word Islam itself is important and tells us something key about Islamic faith. It derives from the Arabic root meaning submission. Hence, the word Muslim with the same root, S-L-M, means one who submits. That is, one who submits to Allah. Submission is a fundamental concept in Islam. Um, This tells us something quite core about Islamic belief. Islam is not so much an announcement of historical events as Christianity would claim to be. Nor is it really an exposition of a philosophical kind about the meaning of life, as Buddhism would claim to be. Islam is fundamentally a revelation of the correct way to submit one's life to God. It is the revelation of the correct way to submit one's life to God. Now, this statement up on the screen reveals, I believe, two key features of the Islamic worldview. And they are the two features I want to focus on in this Spectator's Guide to Islam. Firstly, that Islam is a revelation, a divine revelation in a fundamental sense. Secondly, that it is principally to do with a way of life. Not philosophy, not theology, but the way of life God asks of human creatures. So firstly, let me deal with Islam as fundamentally a revelatory religion. Now, it's true that all religions have some notion of revelation. Um, Buddhism, for example, has some elements of revelation. Uh, The visions the Buddha himself uh, experienced in the lead up to his enlightenment would surely count as revelations in the uh, pure definition. Um, As would some parts of the Christian Bible, especially those bits that say things like, thus says the Lord, blah, 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 blah. That would certainly count as pure revelation. But it also has to be remembered that Buddhists insist that their core truths are open to simple contemplation and logic. They are accessible 
by logic and contemplation. You can arrive at the Buddhist truths, so say Buddhists, and so said Siddhartha Gautama himself, through mere human rationality. You also need to remember that Christians, on the whole, are very happy to say that their Bible, particularly their New Testament, is a historical document as much as a divine one. The human hand is all the way through the New Testament. But at the same time, Christians believe it is a revelation. Now, none of this could be said of the Islamic revelation. The Islamic revelation is neither accessible to contemplation. You can't arrive at the core Islamic beliefs simply by pondering the mysteries of life. And nor is the fundamental Islamic revelation um, of human origin in any sense of the word. It is not an historical event open to historical scrutiny. The Quran, the fundamental Islamic revelation, is, Muslims tell us, the pure dictation of the great um, mother of the book which resides in heaven. There is a perfect Quran in Arabic in heaven and the Quran which we know as a book today in Arabic is simply a recitation, a dictation of the divine book which stands in the presence of Allah. And the word Quran itself, as you can see, means recitation. And it's a reference to the prophet Muhammad. And um, if any of you are Muslims here today, I simply want to apologize up front. When I say the word Muhammad, I won't always say peace be upon him, which is certainly the Islamic tradition. And I hope you don't mind. But the notion of recitation is a reference to Muhammad himself in AD 610 and being visited by the angel Gabriel and told to recite, recite, recite. And the angel Gabriel merely dictated what is in the heavenly book to Muhammad, who took down the revelation, committed it to memory, passed it on to his followers over a period of many years. His first revelation was AD 610 and his last uh, in the year of his death, 632. Unlike the New Testament, the Quran is purely and simply kalam Allah, word of God. It is not a historical document. There are no human tendencies in the Quran. In scholarship, um, there's great analysis of the human tendencies, the authorial tendencies in the New Testament. But you don't get that kind of thing in the Quran because Muhammad himself was simply the conduit for the dictation of the heavenly book through the angel Gabriel. Well, that's the fundamental Islamic uh, revelation. I should also mention the second source of Islamic knowledge, the Hadith. The Hadith uh, are a series of reports about the life, deeds and words of Muhammad himself. And the Hadith provide us with the Sunnah or model of the Prophet, the model of life, the way Islam was meant ideally to be lived out. And the Hadith is taken very seriously by Muslims. The Quran itself endorses the Hadith in several statements. The Hadith provides um, clarification when the Quran is obscure to human minds. And the Hadith combined with the Quran give us what we know as Sharia law, the law, the ideal law of Islam. Anyway, all this is to say, the first thing you must know about Islam is that it is fundamentally a revelatory religion in a way that can't be said of other religions. It is more thoroughgoing in its dependence upon a revelation than any other faith 
that I'm aware of. The second thing to say about Islam is that it is fundamentally about a way of life. Uh, my Muslim friends are always telling me this. Um, at least in Islam, we don't have to put up with those terrible doctrines like the Trinity, which no one can get their brain around, or uh, the five aggregates of attachment, which Siddhartha Gautama taught and will drive you crazy just pondering them. Um, they're incredibly complex philosophical ideas. Islam doesn't really have to contend with that. It's not to say there are not uh, theological ideas in Islam. There are, of course, the doctrine of monotheism, the doctrine of angels, the doctrine of resurrection of the dead, and the last day are all uh, key points of Islamic belief. But more prominent by far in Islam are the life practices revealed in the Quran and the Hadith, required of human beings to be one who submits to Allah, to be a Muslim. And the core of Islamic life practice is in what's called the five pillars. The five pillars of Islam. Now these were not just five ideas plucked out of nowhere. Uh, Muhammad himself emphasised the importance of the five pillars. The five life practices demanded of human beings by God in order to experience life in the hereafter. And for example, let me quote from Hadith number 8 from the Al-Bukhari collection, where uh, we're told that Allah's Messenger said, Islam is based on five principles. What are they? To testify that none has the right to be worshipped, but Allah and Muhammad is the Messenger of Allah. To offer the compulsory congregational prayers, dutifully and perfectly. To pay zakat, the poor tax. To perform hajj, or pilgrimage to Mecca. To observe fasts according to Islamic teachings during the month of Ramadan. If you didn't notice, there were five obligations, five principles. These are the pillars of Islamic practice. Let me race through them uh, for the sake of giving you an overview. First pillar is the shahada, the um, declaration of faith. Every Muslim is obliged at least once in life, but in practice many times in life, to pronounce the central creed of Islam. It's up there on the screen. There is no God but Allah. Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. But of course that's not to be said in English, it's to be said in Arabic. The Muslim has to proclaim this with sincerity, with complete understanding of its implications. Uh, the implications obviously are that there is one God and that Muhammad, uh, who is the conduit for the Quran, is the true messenger or prophet. That's the first um, practice um, expected of Muslims. The second is a devotional life. Prayer, salat, the um, bowing of one's life in words to God the Creator. Now, unlike Christianity, Islamic prayers are fixed prayers. And this is not to say Muslims don't pray extemporary prayers. They do. Um, but the fundamental prayers of Islam are the fixed prayers. And they are prayers that are to be said five times a day. They're only brief. doesn't take forever. This is not a huge burden. Um, but at uh, sunrise and midday and mid-afternoon and sundown and late evening, Muslims are to pray the fixed prayers. Probably the most important of the fixed prayers is this one, which comes from the opening paragraph of the Quran itself. In the name of God, the compassionate, and again, I should say this is all to be in Arabic, not in um, English, but I'm not conversant in Arabic, I'm, I'm afraid. Um, in the name of God, the compassionate, the most merciful, praise be to God, Lord of the universe, the compassionate, the merciful, sovereign of the day of judgment. You alone we worship, and to you alone we turn for help. Guide us to the straight path, the path of those whom you have favoured, not of those who have incurred your wrath, nor of those who have gone astray. Well, that's the prayers, the third pillar of Islam, 
is the zakat, the tax for the poor, generally worked out as 2.5% of annual earnings, is to be given to the Islamic community for use uh, for the underprivileged and for the spread of Islam. One of the key features of Muhammad's own life, particularly in the Meccan period, was his outrage at the social inequality um, in Mecca. The, uh, Mecca being a trading center, um, often the leaders of Mecca um, abused the poor, and Muhammad himself was outraged about this, and the zakat kind of reflects that sense of social justice at the core of Islam. The fourth pillar is, of course, Saum. Again, apologies for my Arabic. Uh, the fast of Ramadan. Um, Ramadan is just the month. Um, and uh, Ramadan was the month in which uh, Muhammad first received the uh, revelation of the Quran. In AD 610, in the month of Ramadan, he received the revelation. And ever since then, Muslims um, have a fast, which goes for the whole month. It's a fast during daylight hours. Right? They don't fast for a whole month. They fast during daylight hours and abstain from all food and sex for daylight hours in honour of the gift of the Quran. Um, of course, the fast ends at the end of the month with a great feast called, reasonably enough, the Feast of the Breaking of the Fast, in which they celebrate, uh, again, the gift of the Quran. And the fifth pillar of Islam is the Hajj. Um, once in life, every Muslim is obliged if he or she is able, physically and financially, to visit the birthplace of the Prophet, Mecca. And in particular, to visit the Kaaba, the cube in the middle of the great mosque of Mecca, which is um, an incredibly important symbol in Islam. Um, making your Hajj is believed to wash away previous sins. Um, and if you've already done it for yourself, you're allowed to do it again on behalf of family members who weren't able to make it and perhaps wash away their sins as well. And to quote the Hadith on this, the Prophet said, whoever performs Hajj for Allah's sake only and does not have sexual relations with his wife and does not uh, do evil or sins during the Hajj, then he will return from Hajj free from all sins as if he were born anew. That's Hadith 773. So much more we could talk about uh, in Islam. We could talk about the differences between um, Sunni majority Muslims and the Shia minority. We could talk about the controversial topic of jihad. Um, we could talk about the Islamic view of religion and state. But we're going to leave all that aside and just um, leave those five pillars dangling in the air. And I want to turn now to unpack the Islamic view of what's wrong with Christianity. I want to talk about what's wrong with Jesus from the Islamic point of view. Now let me clarify, not what's wrong with the true Jesus from the Islamic point of view, because Jesus is mentioned 25 times in the Quran and always very positively. Okay? But what's wrong with the Christian version of Jesus? That's what I want to talk about. Because here, um, it reveals some very fundamental differences between Islam and Christianity. So I'm at point B, in case you're wondering already where we are. I'm at point B, one. The first major problem of Islam and Christianity has to do with the corrupt nature of the New Testament. The corrupt nature of the New Testament. You often hear people say, oh, but the Quran says of Jews and Christians that they're the people of the book. Um, this is an honorific um, mentioned many times throughout the Quran uh, for Jews and Christians. They're people of the book. But I need to say that this is not a reference to um, Judaism and Christianity as we know it today. The Quran does not endorse Judaism or Christianity as we know it today. 
the Islamic view of other religions is explicit in Surah 3.85. Whoever seeks a religion other than Islam, it will never be accepted from him, and in the hereafter he will be one of the losers. So what is the reference to the people of the book? It's a reference to those who were once in possession of the revelation of Allah, but who have perverted that revelation in what we call the Old Testament, the perversion, Jewish perversion of the revelation of Allah, and the New Testament, the Christian perversion of the revelation of Allah. Actually, um, Islam teaches that Jesus himself taught a pure Islam. And that almost immediately, the early church perverted the teaching of Jesus and produced what we call the New Testament. Now, Christians always have the right to reply, or at least to ask the question, why is there no evidence in the historical record of an earlier form of Jesus' teaching? But Muslims will reply, the Quran talks about the corruption of Christian doctrines, and that's enough. How can historical record take precedence over Kalam Allah, the word of God? So the corrupt nature of the New Testament. Secondly, Jesus' death on a cross. Those of you who have hung out with Christians long enough know that they go on and on about Jesus' death on the cross. It's rather important to Christianity. Without Jesus' death on the cross, you don't have a thing called Christianity. But in Islam and in the Quran, this is completely ruled out. Jesus did not die on a cross. Surah 4 uh, mentions no words here. Uh, Surah 4 verses 157 forward. They neither killed nor crucified Jesus, but it was made to appear so unto them. Indeed, those who differ about him are in doubt about it. Their knowledge does not go beyond conjecture, and they did not kill him for certain. Rather, Allah raised him unto him. Allah is mighty and wise. Jesus didn't die on a cross. Actually, the Sydney Morning Herald um, picked up on the, uh, the way the Quran speaks of Jesus. And in an article a few years ago that I, I thought was delightful, um, a journalist tried to argue that if Christians and Muslims could just focus on Jesus, they'd have nothing to disagree with. Okay? Because um, the Quran praises Jesus 25 times, as I said. So let's just focus on it. And in a moment of unnoticed irony, this journalist in this article said that the Quranic Jesus is, quote, not the Jesus who was son of God, admittedly, and who was crucified, but certainly the Jesus who was Messiah, miracle worker, who conversed regularly with God, and who was born a virgin, and who ascended into heaven. Okay, I'm not the Jesus who was son of God, or who died on the cross, no, no, not that one, but another Jesus. I laughed out loud uh, when I read this, I really did, because the journalist had no idea all he was doing was asking Christians to accept the Islamic Jesus, and give up half of their Jesus, the one who died on the cross. Um, I'm all for crossing the great divide for Muslims and Christians, uh, knowing each other as brothers and sisters in the human family. But it ain't going to happen through Christians dropping half of their Jesus in favour of the one in the Quran. The third major problem Islam has with Christianity is this doctrine up here. The doctrine of the divinity of Jesus. Let me say, despite the best efforts of Dan Brown... Um, the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus is um, evidenced from the first generation of Christians. Okay, It wasn't a second generation perversion, even from the Islamic perspective. It was a first generation perversion, if you want to put it like that. 
the first Christians that we know of were talking about Jesus as the embodiment of God the Creator. And it's been fundamental ever since. But to Muslims, this is highly problematic. And I don't think Christians appreciate how problematic this is, both at the logical level and at the level of religion. And I was once speaking at the University of Western Sydney on the very topic of Jesus' divinity. And I focused on Jesus' divinity and the mystery and and beauty it is from the Christian perspective that God would enter the world and take on our weakness and bear shame and die on a cross. And um, at the end of the talk, uh, question time was opened up and a man, very articulate, uh, very polite, stood up, he would have been in his mid-30s, said that what I had just said for half an hour was illogical and blasphemous. He was a Muslim leader in the university and an academic, which is just my luck, Um, and it was the longest five minutes of my speaking career, I must say. Uh, But he was incredibly polite about it, but absolutely insistent. I, I was talking nonsense and talking blasphemy. Nonsense, because how could the creator of the universe ever be dependent on earthly sustenance, food, going to the toilet, and so on? Blasphemous because I was associating absolute infinity with something finite and creative. Only later did I realise that these criticisms come directly out of Surah 5 in the Quran. Let me read them, the text. Unbelievers are those who say, God is the Messiah, the Son of Mary. For the Messiah himself said, Children of Israel, serve God, my Lord and your Lord. He that worships other deities besides God, God will deny him paradise, and the fire shall be his home. Unbelievers are those who say God is one of three, a reference to the Trinity. There is but one God. If they do not desist from so saying, those of them that disbelieve shall be sternly punished. The Messiah, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle. Other apostles passed away before him. His mother was a saintly woman. They both ate their earthly food. Knockdown argument. Jesus needed to eat food. He cannot be the creator himself. Now, I thank my Muslim friend in this um, University of Western Sydney context for drawing attention to the audience. A stark difference between the Islamic and Christian conceptions of God. What is beautiful to the Christian, that God would willingly bear shame and weakness, is blasphemous in Islam. Two very different concepts. Well, my last point has to do with the fundamental idea of how one finds favour with God. Islam has a major problem with this fundamental Christian idea of grace through substitutionary atonement. Sorry that sounds incredibly theological. I don't normally speak in theological terms, uh, mainly historical terms. But all of you who have hung out with Christians long enough will know that they believe that Jesus' death accomplished what no moral or religious activity could ever accomplish. Atonement for our wrongdoing. Jesus on the cross bore the judgment of God human beings deserve for rejecting him. And therefore, the salvation of God is a pure gift solely by grace because of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus' death. Moral works, religious works play no part in securing salvation in a Christian context. Now, Christians think that sounds like a nice idea, a beautiful idea. And Christians don't realise what an affront this is 
to the Islamic conception of salvation. For one thing, this idea is a cop-out because you're letting someone else take the blame for something you did. It's a cop-out. The Islamic principle is stated perfectly in Surah 6, 164. Every soul is accountable for what evil it commits and no soul shall bear the burden of another soul. The thought is repeated in Surah 17, 15. He who is well guided is well guided for himself and he who goes astray goes astray to his own loss. No soul shall bear the burden of another soul. This principle of personal accountability for one's sins completely rules out the fundamental Christian idea of grace through substitutionary atonement. It is also the basis of the strong Islamic idea that a believer's good deeds can atone for a believer's sins, which is a concept a long way from Christianity, sometimes through financial charity, as in Surah chapter 2, 271. We're told that to give alms publicly is commendable, but to keep it secret and give it to the poor um, is better for you and will atone for some of your sins. The things you do can undo some of your sins. Sometimes it's thought to occur through prayers. This is a, 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 a text from the Hadith, uh, number 300 from the Al-Bukhari collection. I heard the Prophet saying, if there was a river at the door of any one of you and he took a bath in it five times a day, would you notice any dirt on, on him? They said, not a trace of dirt would be left. The Prophet said, this is the example of the five prayers, the five daily prayers, with which Allah blots out evil deeds. So again, financial charity and prayer can undo sins. Um, for the sake of time, I'll skip over this uh, Surah 595, where we're told that fasting can also undo sins, can expiate sins. Let me make something very clear, and this is speaking to the Christians especially. Um, this is not to say Muslims believe you earn your salvation as a wage, as a right. Okay, I need to make that very clear. Uh, Christians often jump to that conclusion. Um, Islamic salvation is not a wages system. All the good deeds in the world would not oblige Allah to be merciful to you. Okay, Let me make that very clear. The Islamic view of salvation is more like a contract than a pure wage system. The contract is, if you are faithful in fulfilling the life requirements of Allah, in particular the five pillars of Islam, then Allah will forgive you if you do these things. The principle is stated well in Surah 33-35. Listen carefully to this. Men and women who have submitted, this is the word Islam, believed, obeyed, are truthful, steadfast, reverent, giving in charity, fasting, guarding their private parts and remembering Allah often, Allah has prepared for them forgiveness and a great reward. See the logic? It's very important to see. Surah 72, 20. Recite then what you can of the Quran. Perform the prayers. Give the alms and lend Allah a fair loan. Whatever good you forward for your own soul's sake, you shall find it with Allah, growing into a greater good and a greater wage. Seek Allah's forgiveness. Allah is indeed all-forgiving, all-merciful. Do you see it, Christians? Do as much good as you can 
and Allah will consider it a loan for which he will pay you interest in the hereafter. That is the Islamic view of salvation. And it completely rules out the New Testament notion of salvation as coming through grace alone, through the substitutionary death of Jesus. To quote the New Testament, got to have one New Testament text here, don't we? For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. This is all the way through the New Testament, to quote a second passage, Titus 3, 4 and 5. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, in context of reference to Jesus, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His great mercy. Well, what's wrong with Jesus, according to Islam? Well, there's nothing wrong with the Islamic Jesus. The Jesus revealed in the perfect Quran. The one who performed miracles, who taught Islam, and who pointed forward to his superior in Muhammad. Nothing wrong with him. But the Christian Jesus, the one distorted by the New Testament who is the embodiment of God himself and who died and rose to secure free atonement. He is a shimmerer, a fraud, a myth and a blasphemy. Islam and Christianity offer two very different pictures of God, of Jesus and of salvation. This was all brought home to me quite recently in a conversation with my Lebanese Shia Muslim taxi driver coming home from the airport not long ago. Um, I could tell he uh, was of Middle Eastern origin and asked him about his country of origin and I love talking about things. I could tell that he was a Muslim and I asked him about his faith as I love to do. He was a very devout Shia Muslim. He said his five daily prayers. Um, he always uh, paid the zakat. He um, kept the Ramadan fast strictly. And um, he was about to perform his hajj. He was about to go to Mecca, about which he was very, very excited. I then asked him about Jesus. Um, and he had nothing but praise. Um, Jesus taught Islam. Uh, Jesus was a wonderful teacher and miracle worker. Um, and being a particular type of Shia Muslim, he actually said that Jesus was going to return and judge the earth. And lots of Muslims believe that. Then I asked him about me, as one who believes in the divine, crucified, atoning Jesus of the New Testament. Without blinking, and without any embarrassment, and without the slightest tone of condescension, he said, Allah will cast you into hellfire. Uh, we arrived at home. <laughs> I thanked him. We joked about the level of conversation you can have in a taxi. Shook hands. Wished God's blessing on each other. And went our separate ways. But I came away reminded that the theological differences between Islam and Christianity 
are very, very great. And I would agree with my Shia friend that they are matters of heaven and hell. And with that, I end. And uh, I'll leave it to Ryan to say if we have time for questions. We do? Yeah. Shall I take them or? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I often say, look, I'm great with questions, just not so great with answers, so be kind. <laughs> Any questions, comments? Yeah. I'd like to thank you for portraying a very good uh, concept of Islam because I myself am a Muslim and it was most like, most of it was uh, 99% accurate. I just want to uh, mention one thing that that um, God, also, His mercy is also a big thing in Islam. For example, there was uh, a person who used 500 years of worship as um, and means to get into heaven. He said he wants to get into heaven with his 500 years of worship. He developed his whole life to Islam and he worshipped for those 500 years also. But God put those deeds and that worship on a scale and he put his own mercy and his mercy obviously outweighed the 500 years worth of worship. So the important message to take home is that God um, lets people enter heaven through his mercy, not necessarily only by the good deeds. Obviously it takes a lot of weight but his mercy overrides everything else. Thank you. For example, the other man who um, was so bad in his life, he committed the greatest sins, and when he approached his deathbed, he asked his sons to burn him and scatter his ashes in the ocean so he won't have to face God on the day of judgment. Um, And when, obviously, it was the time for that judgment, he was resurrected, and he found himself in front of his Lord, and he, uh, he was really scared, and God questioned him, why did you do that for? He said, I was uh, worried that I have to face your wrath. And because of that, God forgave him, because um, he, uh, he feared uh, his Lord, and therefore he went to based on that as well. Yep. So, sure. Um, I don't know if you heard all that, um, but I would um, endorse that entirely. Um, are these stories from... Um, Islamic tradition even outside the hadith? No, these are hadiths. I'd love the references because I would certainly um, uh, bring them in a public lecture in the future. Um, And and perhaps my words um, didn't give the correct impression. I was trying to say particularly to Christians who who I think believe that Islam is just a works religion. What I was trying to say is it's not that simple. It's It's a contract where if you do these things, Allah's mercy overrides all your sins. Um, I don't want to give the impression that it's just deeds. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Dixon, um, thank you also for um, extending this um, kind of invitation by the EU also, um, for the Rules of Association. I'd like to extend the same um, warm wishes that were expressed by my uh, friend and brother, Michelle. And um, I'd also like to make a comment about um, the concept of God in Islam. Um, I do understand the concept of God through Christianity, meaning um, the saviour. And, and um, the components of love associated with God. And um, by speaking to a lot of um, Christian brothers and sisters, a lot of them would sort of look at the concept of God in Islam as a, as a deity who is um, wrathful, who is full of anger and vengeance for, for people who do sin. And um, there is a hadith, a saying of history upon him, um, in Bukhari, which you were quoting from, um, that basically says when God created creation, and um, had full 
um, he, he ordered the pen to basically write that God's um, mercy over, um, prevails over his wrath. So, so the whole concept of, of God being merciful, and I remember saying that 114 times in the Quran, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, in the name of God, the most merciful, the most compassionate. So this uh, concept of mercy in Islam is, is indeed um, quite, quite an important one. And of course, um, God also mentions that it is not through our actions that we are granted um, the governance of heaven. It is actually through Allah's mercy, through God's mercy. So uh, with that note, I would like to thank you once again. Thank and uh, thank you to everyone here. Thank you. Um, yeah, again, I've got nothing to reply by way of dispute, um, but I appreciate the clarification. Was there another question over here? Yeah. Um, it's a bit of a technical point, but um, I may, well, I'll just ask for clarification. Um, I think you said that um, it's very, your sins are taken on your, you take responsibility for your own sins, but it seems that you said when uh, a Muslim takes a journey to Mecca that they could, if, if they'd already been, they could be a substitute to someone else. Yes. So is that a contradiction because they're taking on someone else's uh, sins? Do you know what I mean? So yeah. Um, I, I think a Muslim would say, no, he's not actually taking responsibility for the other person's sins. He's simply fulfilling, and usually this is done by family members, fulfilling uh, practice which a, another Muslim um, brother or sometimes father or whatever hasn't been able to do through um, lack of funds, um, through uh, sickness or whatever. Um, so it's really the fulfilment of righteousness, not really an atonement. I think Muslims would agree with me. It's not an atonement. Yeah. yeah. One more question. Yeah. Um, in, in Christianity, there's the question, how can God be merciful? That's because Jesus has taken our sins. Does, does the same question, how can God be merciful, does it make sense in Islam? Does it have an answer in Islam? Well, the answer in Islam is, is God is purely mercy. Okay? Uh, as well as wrath, Yes. But that problem doesn't appear to a Muslim to be a philosophical problem. Because Allah is his own person. He's not obliged in any way to anyone. So he can purely, by his mercy, decide to um, negate his judgment on a particular faithful Muslim without the need to atone. So it's true that a Christian looks at that and feels a kind of problem between the justice and mercy of God. But a Muslim doesn't see that as a problem since Allah is purely free being, not bound by his judgment or by his mercy. I think that's a fair answer. I'm getting a sort of nod. <laughs> Let me just say, in closing, these are very real differences. And I know this is something our Muslim friends here today will agree with. Very real differences. And they are matters of life, death, heaven and hell. And I ask all of you to scrutinise the claims of Christianity and Islam and see where the truth leads. Thank you. God bless.